I'll be reading Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed it to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Well, it's a great delight to be with you tonight. Uh, you'll find a mildly useful outline uh, inside the new sheet if you'd like to look at that. One of the things which happens when we come to church on a Sunday is that each week we're given a, a bigger picture which gives meaning to our everyday lives and shapes our lives and gives significance to our daily tasks. For the Bible uh, explains uh, not what we do and how to do it, but why we do what we do and the meaning of what we do. I was, uh, I've begun to teach a new uh, uh, unit at Ridley College and we had our first um, morning last uh, Tuesday uh, and I said to the students, uh, what's happening in this unit is that I am investing and you are investing in your future ministry. 
So the purpose of our study is that you will serve bet people better in the decades to come. So let's pray for those people to whom you will minister in the future. You don't know who they are, but God does. Some of them are not yet born, but God knows that they will be born and you'll minister to them in 40 years time or whatever it is. So let's pray that God uses our learning together uh, so that you will be a blessing to them in the future. That's the big picture of why we study, actually. It's so we can love our neighbor better in the future. A parents, uh, you've given birth to another image of God. And you have the privilege of caring, providing, loving, and training an image of God. What a privilege that is. Bankers, you love your neighbor by providing a place for people to keep their money safe. And if you've read any history and know of what happens when banks collapse, as has happened in Australia, you'll know how precious a bank is and how valuable uh, the service of bankers is as they love their neighbor. Street cleaners, you love your neighbor. You're not just picking up rubbish, you're actually contributing to a safer and healthier, healthier and more pleasant environment and preventing rubbish from trashing our rivers and our bay. See, keeping the big picture of why we do things and what we do, what it means in God's economy is so important because it gives both dignity and drama to our daily lives. Ta paying taxes. I love paying taxes. We, because when I pay my tax, I have the privilege of serving and loving my neighbor, don't I? Don't you love paying income tax? Go on, you do really, don't you? Go on in your heart of hearts. You think, well, thank God for this wonderful opportunity for me to contribute to the welfare of society. Roads, bridges, schools, hospitals, education, pensions, government, defense, police, overseas aid. It's, a, it's an immense privilege, isn't it? And if you think about paying your taxes that way, you'll do it cheerfully and not grumpily. There's a challenge. And of course, all of us, whatever our situation in life, have the daily opportunity to love our neighbors in the work we do or have done or will do, and by taking every opportunity to care for and serve and be pleasant to the people around us. So a bigger picture is always helpful. And that's also true when we're reading the Bible. So I'd like you to look at a map uh, which I've given you uh, there in the sermon outline. Now I didn't do very well at map drawing in school because I was once drawing a map of Australia and I thought the great Australian bite was very boring. It was sort of like that. So I thought I'll add some fjords in. Was, looked much more exciting. My Australia looked much more exciting than the Australia you see around you. The teacher was not impressed with my creative geography, I'm afraid. But here's a map of the Old Testament and New Testament. And just a few points I'd like to bring out. That the temple 
in the Holy Land, the house of God, was a visible sign of the Christ to come. It was a reminder that the God who dwelt among his people in a building in the Old Testament would dwell among his people in his son in the New Testament. And as we'll learn from Hebrews, priests and sacrifices in the Old Testament, well, they were serving the people at that time, but they were also glimpses of future glory of Jesus, our great high priest, and his once-for-all sacrifice. And rest in the land, which, as you might have noticed, is a topic of Hebrews chapter 4, is a gift of God to the people. That is a safe place to live, uh, a safe place to be with God, a, a place of prosperity and delight, a free, the land was a free gift of God, providing safety, food and drink, prosperity, a place to settle down and call home. And also the land was a place where God would settle down and make his home among his people. And they were promised rest in that land. And the Sabbath day, the weekly Sabbath day, the Saturday, what we call Saturday, was also a day of rest as a reminder of the goodness of God. In Exodus 20, it is that uh, God rested on the seventh day, and we find that theme uh, picked up in Hebrews chapter 4. Deuteronomy 5, they rest on the seventh day because God brought them out of Egypt. So the seventh day, the day of rest, is a day of remembering God's creation, but also his great act of salvation in rescuing them. And the kings of the Old Testament point forward to Christ and the prophets point forward to Christ. So all these things we read about in the Old Testament are visible signs of the Christ to come. And uh, Christ's gifts, if you like, come in two stages. There is the now and there is the then. So... How does Christ offer us rest now? Well, hear these words from Matthew 11. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Isn't that lovely? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So what's promised in a kind of earthly way in the Old Testament is most wonderfully given us in the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, not only that, there's also a future rest. One, one, of the uh, one of the ways in which the land was described was the people's inheritance. The promised land was the gift of God's promise. It was also a promised land that they would inherit. Well, listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, in God's great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance, or you might say a land or a rest that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance, this land, this rest is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. 
So what God promises in the Old Testament, he delivers in Jesus Christ. The land, the rest in the land is a free gift providing safety, food and drink, prosperity, a place to settle down and call home. And Jesus offers us fullness of life now as we come to him for rest and fullness of life for eternity. You might find the timeline uh, useful as well. Uh, the rest of Genesis chapter 1, the rest given to God, uh, given by God to the people when they entered the land under Joshua, the rest mentioned in Psalm 95, written later on, the rest we have in Christ now, and the rest we will have when Christ returns. Now, what's the big message of Hebrews 4 about this rest, this promise of God, this promise of blessing? Look uh, with me at the text of Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, the, the theme is introduced and then uh, picked up uh, and then finalized, if you like, in verses 1 and 11. So, verse 1, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. And then the summary at the end of this section in verse 11. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So that's the beginning and end of the message about rest in these verses. Verse 2 tells us that the promise of rest is one of good news. Verse 2, we've also had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. They were promised rest in the land. We're promised rest in Christ. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those uh, who obeyed. But the rest in the land also pointed to God's rest, rest with God in verses 3 and 4, in eternal rest from the day of creation to the end of time. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God had said, I declare an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere, that is Genesis 1, he's spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. But then again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Well, you might remember from the first two chapters of the Bible that God's rest in Genesis 1 is a rest shared with Adam and Eve in the garden. So, it's a rest in which God is present and we are present with God. There is the promise and there is the hope. Verses 5 to 8 
remind us that the entering the rest was not just in the time of Joshua when they entered the promised land, but still later in Psalm 95, the message is still relevant. So the promise of entering that rest still remains. Verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. You see, you might read the Old Testament and think it's largely about real estate. We will enter the land, we're in the land, then we're cast out of the land, and then we come back into the land. But listen to these words from later on in Hebrews, uh, chapter 11. Uh, Abraham made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Listen to this. For he, that is Abraham, was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. So Abraham knew that the land he was living in pointed to something better, something eternal, built by God. Or again, later on in that chapter, verse 16, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let us make every effort to enter that rest. Let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. The rest was a free gift, but costly to receive. It's like marriage, really. A husband or a wife is a free gift of God. You don't earn a husband or a wife. But there's a certain cost involved in receiving the husband or wife whom you receive. As a lady said to me today, after 50 years marriage, I'm still getting used to him. I think he might have said the same. Children are a free gift of God, but who knows what a child will cost a loving parent when, they, when children are young or when they're older. The cost of love is sometimes deep grief. A free gift, you see, but costly to receive. A church is a free gift, but sometimes costly to receive. Friends are a free gift, but sometimes they bring pain and suffering into our lives. But here is a precious free gift. Jesus described the kingdom of heaven in these words in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So what coming to church does is to remind us of what's really 
important in our lives, what must be central in our lives? God. For the first command is love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. And God is our creator and our saviour. And to God we need we will give an account of our lives on the last day. And God is the only lasting and true source of forgiveness and peace and joy and energy and contentment. And how does God help us to make every effort to enter that rest? to receive the free gift. The answer is a sword, verses 12 to 13. The sword is the Bible, that word of God, which is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates in, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom he must give account. That's why reading the Bible each day is so important. And that's why coming to church to hear the Bible read and preached is so important. And that's why our Bible studies are so important. Not because the Bible is a kind of textbook that you need to learn, but because God uses the Bible to uncover the depths of our hearts, to show the reality of who we are, and to change us and transform us. It's a powerful word. It is, as the writer says, alive, living, and active. Actually, this is really good news. Because the great danger we've seen in the previous verses is a hard heart against God. But how wonderful that God's sword, the Bible, can break through a hard heart. Isn't that good news? Aren't you thankful? You should be. Because one day your heart might harden against God. But God, through his scriptures, can penetrate the hardest heart. How else are sinners converted? How else are disobedient Christians restored? How else are drifting Christians recovered? But by the power of the sword of God, that word of God, living and active. But not just a sword, but a saviour. Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to feel sympathy or empathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. 
So when he's saying make every effort to enter that rest, you might think it's all up to me. But it isn't. Let's think about Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest. He has ascended into heaven. That is, he has made the long journey, despite the fact, as we learn in the next verse, that he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. And elsewhere in Hebrews, Jesus is described as the forerunner. We think, well, he's made it so we can make it too. As we follow him and fix our eyes on him. And as we receive his forgiveness and enabling power. This Jesus was tempted in every way. We often feel the pressures of our temptations and we often think when, we're, when we feel tempted that we have sinned. But actually, feeling tempted is not sinning, is it? It's giving in to the temptation, which is the sin. So don't be discouraged when you're tempted. Jesus was tempted, but not discouraged. Isn't that wonderful? And he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he understands our weaknesses from the inside because he was one of us. He is one of us. And in him we find mercy for our failings, that is, for the mistakes we make, and grace to help us in times of need. See how generously and wonderfully God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. He is the one who is our rest, the one who gives us rest, the one who shows us the way, the one who sympathizes with our weaknesses, the one who has mercy on our failings, and the one who gives us grace to help in time of need. Truly, we need again and again to fix our eyes on Jesus, the Son of God. Well, we've mentioned a sword, and I'd like to recommend a practical penknife. In the coming week, give yourself one Bible verse for each day. I've suggested some uh, we might take from this one, this, uh, this passage. Let us make every effort to enter into Jesus' rest. Or, we must give account of ourselves to God. Or, Jesus sympathizes with our weakness. Or, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Memorize the verse. Repeat it to yourself during the day whenever there's a kind of quiet moment. Put it into practice. During the day, turn it into praise and thanks. Turn it into a prayer for yourself. Turn the verse into a prayer for your fellow members of this church. Turn it, if you need to, into words of repentance. Turn it into a promise. I was doing this recently with uh, words from Romans where Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God. That was my verse for the day, which meant that everything I did, I said to myself, I said to God, I'm offering not only myself, but this task to you as a living sacrifice. This prayer to you as a living sacrifice. 
this care for this person as a living sacrifice, this preparation for ministry tomorrow as a living sacrifice, this love of my neighbor as a living sacrifice. Admittedly, I was very tired that day and I had to say, God, it's a pretty tired living sacrifice, but I'm sure you'll cope with that. But what I'm trying to do, you see, is to shape my day by this little penknife from the big sword. Just one phrase or sentence from the scriptures. Do everything to the glory of God, giving thanks to, to, for the glory of Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. How wonderful if each day we were being shaped and sustained and encouraged and enriched by the bigger picture of our lives. That would add dignity to our days and significance to our lives and drama to our existence. For we're living not for ourselves in our own small circle, but living for God and making every effort to enter that rest and looking to Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest, ascended into heaven, who gives us grace and mercy in times of need. I'm going to pray a prayer written by John Donne, who was a poet and a preacher. The language is dated, but I hope you enjoy and take part in the prayer. Bring us, O Lord, at our last awakening into the house and gate of heaven to enter that gate and dwell in that house where there shall be no darkness or dazzling but one equal light, no noise or silence, but one equal music, no fears nor hopes, but one equal possession, no ends nor beginnings, but one equal eternity, in the habitation of thy majesty and glory, world without end. Amen.